right, and welcome to episode number two of We Are the Other Thing. Uh, I am Patrick Natola, uh, coming calling in from the Bay Area in California, and returning with us again is Josh Relkin, aka Sonic, calling in from Chicago, and joining us today is my dear friend John Laurel, calling in from New York City. Um, Again, want to apologize for any of the audio quality issues that we might have. We're doing this garage band style. Uh, we have no proper recording equipment, literally recording a Skype call with no microphones or anything. So if the quality of the audio is poor, I apologize. Um, and yeah, and last last time we uh, we got together and dove deep into uh, the results of COVID-19 in the restaurant industry, it got really dark and depressing. We're going to try and keep it a little more lighthearted today. So, uh, Josh, say hi. How you doing? Oh, hey, everybody. I'm doing well, Patrick. How are you? I am good. So, Johnny, how are you in New York? I'm doing well. Thank you so very much, gentlemen. Thank you for having me on today. Oh, thank you for joining us. Um, yeah, so like I said, John, Josh and I last time, you know, started talking about what was COVID going to mean to the restaurant business and it was all questions and speculation and not really a, a bright shining light. It was a, a fun conversation that got real dark real quickly today. Um, is enough darkness in the, in the world. And I want to, uh, kind of focus on some fun stories of the bar industry prior to COVID-19 that we got to enjoy and laugh about, uh, and maybe look at uh, some hopeful light at the end of the tunnel when life does start to return back to normal. Unfortunately, I think restaurants and bars will be one of the last businesses to reopen just because of the the amount of stuff that new systems that have to be put in place in order to keep everybody safe. Um, it's just a lot of moving parts in a restaurant and bar that a lot of other businesses don't have to deal with. But um, first off, uh, I want to know what's everybody doing with their downtime? Well, Sonic, I know you're still working, so um, you, you still. <laughs> My downtime is a 15-month-old son. <laughs> <laughs> good, good, and he's and he's uh, keeping you and, and the wife busy as well. Yeah, getting up to his feet, starting to climb stairs. He's been a handle. It's been fun. Nice. And what's he's uh, two now? Almost two. Fifteen months. Uh, okay. Like a little over a year. Born in January. Time flies though. Yeah, it does, especially when you're sitting around doing nothing at home. I have no idea what day it is, what time it is. I do know what time it is. I'm still getting up at like 9 o'clock every morning, so I'm trying to be a responsible adult that way. Uh, Johnny, what are you doing to keep yourself busy? Are you working? Are you furloughed? Um, I am uh, currently furloughed from uh, both my jobs. I have two jobs here in New York City. I work for a, a major restaurant chain, and I also work at a regular Irish pub. So, uh, thankfully, uh, I'm being taken care of with my unemployment benefits. Uh, with the extra they're kicking in, I'm actually kind of almost breaking even, a little bit less than I would if I was working. But, uh, thankfully, uh, knock wood, money-wise, I'm doing okay. Uh, good. My landlord and I had a very good conversation, and uh, uh, I'm thankful he's being very patient. He said, if you have any problems, just you know, vocalize that. And uh, that's kind of been the sentiment with a lot of my friends and their uh, living situation. So, I'm thankful that... Uh, it seems like New York City, actually, the conscience of New York is kind of showing through. And a lot of that is uh, a lot of patience going on right now. Yeah, so I mean, that wrap for how we are, but um, you're seeing the good part of New York right now. That's awesome. And it's good to hear that you guys are dealing with the worst of it. Yeah. And uh, Sonic, if I may say, you know, I have a good friend of mine who's actually in the same boat with a, a newborn at home. You know, a lot of times fathers don't get the, the paternity leave they uh, should get. So you're actually getting to enjoy the time with your son that a lot of people aren't getting. So please enjoy that. That's actually kind of a blessing yeah. in disguise to all this bad thing. So 
I am not blind to it. I'm actually very, very thankful. It's I'm really blind. the biggest reason that I took the job I did. So excellent, excellent. Um, now, and before we move on to uh, fun stories, I've got some doozies that have been I've been lovingly remembering over the past couple of weeks uh, to try and keep my sanity. But uh, I completely forgot. Uh, since I've disconnected from social media for the most part, that the NFL draft recently happened. And you guys are huge, my biggest football nerd friends that I that I know. Um, uh, Sonic, you're a diehard Jets fan. Um, how sure the, am. How, how the Jets looking if there is a season this year? Uh, actually, our draft went very well. It is the first year for our general manager drafting, and he is pulling a not-so-Jets draft, so I'm actually very excited. He promised something ahead of the draft, what he wanted to focus on, and he's following through with it. It's actually, I'm not even sure it's real. I think I'm going to wake up, and the draft is actually (laughs) going to happen, and it's going to be completely different, so... And, uh, Johnny, you're, uh, you're, you follow the Raiders, and are you still a Giants fan as well? Uh, actually, I haven't really, uh, I, my team growing up was the Giants until I was like 14, but, uh, I've been a Raiders fan, and it's actually part of my job now. I actually run the New York City Raiders Booster Club, uh, so I'm all about the Raiders, and we have a pretty solid draft. I'm very excited for what they're doing now. Nice. Um, and Would you they... take wide receivers in the first three rounds? We took, um, three <laughs> wide receivers with our first four picks. So, yeah. Now, how about your quarterback? Uh, you know, Derek Carr. I've actually was on my uh, my own page today and discussing that. And uh, I love Derek Carr personally. I think he's a great quarterback. Uh, he's had a lot, a string of bad luck, and he hasn't always had everything he needs around him. And he leads the league in drop passes. If you look at his receivers, they got him lots of receivers. He's got a great line. He's got a great running game. Uh, as much as I love Derek, this is his put up or shut up year, I believe. <laughs> so, especially in the AFC West, where uh, you got Mahomes and Every other uh, team like reloaded with their offense, so it's uh, time for uh, Carr to uh, you know step up or move on. Doesn't yeah. he also have Marcus Mariota sitting behind him now? Yes, he is. So that leads oh. pretty short. <laughs> pretty short, but you know I have a lot of faith in Derek. I actually have a big Derek Carr guy, and uh, from a couple of years ago when we had Carr, Cooper, and uh, Mac on the team, I'd like to have one jersey I can still wear. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm hoping that there'll be a football season and we can all start enjoying one of our favorite pastimes. That'll, that'll bring life thing, to normal. You know, as much as other sports have actually uh, not been playing, the NFL went about their off season and the draft as normal as possible, which has been great. It's given us something else to focus on and something else to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. What was ESPN doing all these weeks after Tom Brady made his decision? I, You know, I have no idea because I usually get an update from ESPN on my Alexa every morning, and they just stopped updating. <laughs> at, least, you know, at least the NFL gave us something else, albeit momentarily, to, like, focus on and give us something else to talk about besides COVID-19. <laughs> you actually want a jersey? Jesus, man. <laughs> I, I actually just went into the closet to pull this out to put it on. And it's it's a Sam Darnold jersey since no one can see us. But oh, I had to go through I did go through all of my old jerseys and I became a big fan in high school. Um, I'm gonna, my girlfriend I'm gonna tell, had season tickets. I'm just gonna tell you what I tell every other Jets fan: buy a fucking Namath jersey and be done with it. <laughs> uh, well, that's funny because I had to dig through all the jerseys that have been gifted to me and that I yeah. bought when I thought I knew what was going on, and I just went through a Geno Smith jersey and a Matt Forte jersey. Yeah. So I've got some shit in there. Real quick, my uh, my darling cousin Christy is a diehard Jet fan, and for Christmas a few years ago, 
she was given a Brett Favre jersey, and like right after the season was over, he was gone. So she went from Favre to Sanchez to Smith to and uh, after I just got her, I just gave her my old Namath jersey that I had in my closet. It's like this is your jersey, just use this. So <laughs> you can never go wrong. Not jersey, and that's the lesson <laughs> for a long time. You Whatever happened? To, oh my God! Yeah. Whatever happened to Sanchez? Uh, he last I checked, he was on the Bears, and I think he's out of the league right now. He's probably selling hot dogs somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> he's just he's making money off of a butt fumble. That's he's still replaying <laughs> it over and over and over again for comedic purposes. Uh, he'll be on he'll be on a low light reel for the rest of his life. <laughs> if somebody has to. Yeah. And I'm just realizing now it might have been a mistake inviting the two of you on and then introducing football into the conversation. <laughs> 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 Time. We even need you back. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Pat's on this? Who knew? <laughs> oh, cool. Um, so, and what's uh, you know, Sonic? You've been working, Johnny. Uh, I noticed you've been posting on Instagram, but doing some more cooking at home, huh? I have been living in my kitchen, which has actually become my sanctuary because I uh, I love to cook. I don't get nearly enough time, and I uh, I made a conscious decision to myself to uh, not. I yo, everyone always says, oh, I'll do that when I have the time. I have the time I'm trying to do. And have you poisoned uh, yourself yet? I have not. I did have a, uh, a mishap with some muffins I tried baking the other day. <laughs> I don't really want to go too much into that. It was a mistake, <laughs> and I apologize. Um, but we've uh, rebounded. I, I, I followed up with some eggplant parmesan that I made that night, which I will say restored, restored honor to my dojo. <laughs> Show off. Okay, well. <laughs> I, I think I've I've cooked one successful, maybe two successful dinners in the past like month and a half. Uh, the best one was just a simple bolognese sauce, and I just got lucky. Everything else is like it's like a crapshoot for me here. Like ah, the family's like, do we really want to taste it here? Where's the dog? Will the dog eat it? <laughs> and yet Kelsey loves you anyway. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why. We don't either. I lost five bucks on that weekend. Uh, <laughs> I made five bucks on that weekend. So uh, we're all missing our bars um, desperately, uh, just the culture and the people and everything. And, you know, you, you read every article and podcast by every influencer and top chef around the country, and it's a lot of questions and, and even fewer answers as to what this looks like. Um, but what are some of the some of the stories you guys have had or have that from your days behind the bar, sitting at bars that stand out as good memories for you, things that are going to, you know, that have always influenced your reason for staying in this industry. I, I can dive into how yeah, I, yeah, please. I, I, I started as a cook. So my getting behind the bar, I think is also a nice little segue for this. So being on, on the guest side of things, I remember the way that I specifically, I can name it to this experience and a specific cocktail is the reason I got behind the bar. And that was my first experience at the Violet Hour in Chicago. And I had moved to Chicago, um, in like March of, of 2009 and had no friends, knew no one except for the people I was working, you know, 90 hours with across the, the restaurant at Alinea and one summer night, out of nowhere, one of the front of the house guys was like, hey, we're all getting out pretty early. The kitchen's getting out early. Like, you guys never get a chance to come out. Do you want to come check out a spot with us? And I was 22 years old, I think, at the time. And so 
was like, sure, yeah, I'll go to a bar. Let's do this. And showed up to the Violet Hour knowing literally nothing about it. Uh, and for those of you that are not familiar with the Violet Hour, at the time it was the premier cocktail bar in Chicago. Um, the front facade of the bar is a painted mural. There's no sign. If you don't know what it's the Violet Hour, you walk past it, have no idea. And so there I was in the middle of the summer showing up in a tank top and cargo shorts and flip-flops. And that's a no-no. Street dress not code is easy, huh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you actually have to look like a normal human being that didn't roll out of bed. And I was a human being that had rolled out of bed and gone to work. And so uh, one of the uh, sommeliers actually ran out, uh, talked to the door guy who happened to be a friend of his. He, I put on his coat um, from work that he happened to be bringing home to dry clean. And so because I was now wearing a sports coat, it was good enough for me to come in. So, <laughs> so sports coat, cargo shorts, flip-flops, and a tank top? Yeah, yeah, that was it. Okay. That was a good luck. Yeah, oh, God, I wish there was a picture of that. Yeah, um, and they uh, decided to put us on the other side of the curtain and close us off so no one could really see what I was wearing. And <laughs> ponied up to the bar, and, you know, I had no idea what I'm doing. It's this beautifully, dimly lit, very intimate space. And bartender comes over, starting to talk to me, and was just like, you know what, let's get you started with a drink. Do you know what you'd like? And so my experience at the time was very limited. So I asked for my go-to cocktail, which was a uh, Captain Morgan and Diet Coke. <laughs> yes. And they don't have Captain Morgan, and they don't have Diet Coke. So I, 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 I switched to my number two, my fallback, which was Jack Daniels and regular Coca-Cola. I then got explained that that's not how this bar works in a very nice way. And so... Um, I mean, they, they were handed, nice to you? Yes. Yeah. Uh, it had to be. I, I was surrounded <laughs> by Olympia. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so handed me a menu, and I'm reading through a, their cocktail menu, and it's just words I I don't really know much about. And so the bartender suggested a cocktail to me that was gin-based. And my reference to gin-based cocktails because of college was a handle of Tanqueray and the cheapest tonic you could find, and you fill a pint glass with gin, and you splash the tonic on top, and that's a gin and tonic. And those are not very good. (laughs) (laughs) So there's the bartender suggesting to me this gin-based drink, and I have no idea if I'm going to like it. And he's like, if you don't like it, we'll make it something else. We'll figure it out. So shakes up the cocktail, slides it over to me, and I nervously take my first sip, and my mouth drops, and my eyes light up, and it was the first time I had experienced what a cocktail could be. Uh, the cocktail happens to be the Juliet and Romeo um, from their their fame, uh, kind of one cocktail of the year, put that bar on the map. It's a uh, modified gimlet with rose water and cucumber shaken into it, and it is absolutely delicious. I still love that drink to this day. Yeah, I remember that drink actually being the recipe being given to me when I was working at Sable and it was uh, Mike Ryan had mentioned here, study this cocktail, learn the ins and outs of this and you'll understand. He was trying to teach me a lesson in cocktail building. Pretty sure there was like 12 ingredients in that cocktail. So sorry, Mike Ryan, I spent all of five minutes studying that cocktail because I'm a lousy mixologist. (laughs) But you are a hell of a bartender. Hell of a bartender, lousy mixologist. I'll give you that. Um, Johnny, one of some of your favorite stories. I know you got tons of them. Everything from oh. uh, 
you got O'Flaherty's, you've got, uh, what was the, what was the bar from Long Island you used to love? You were there for a lot of the good ones. You were there for some of the bad ones. Um, <laughs> most of them were bad. Uh, <laughs> looking back, they weren't as good as we remember them, I think. But no, we had some, we had some great times. I mean, uh, I know Patrick because I met him, uh, when we were both employed to work at a comedy club in, uh, Times Square, New York City. And, uh, you learn a lot about volume and speed when you do that type of work because, a comedy club is a 200-person room, uh, two-drink minimum, 90-minute show. So you've got to pump out 400 drinks in 90 minutes at a constant rate because you also have two shows going on simultaneously every hour on the half hour. So when one show is ending, another show is beginning. So you're getting out, uh, without exaggeration, almost 2,000 drinks a night. Oh, easy. For hustling. God, I don't so, miss that shit. Uh, you know, I do and I don't. Uh, I am a much better bartender because of it. I learned a lot of the techniques and uh, skill I have because I had to be that fast. Uh, we learned a lot of cost and uh, time-cutting measures. It, it wasn't pretty, um, but, you know, we got the job done. And uh, People had a good time. We had a great time. It was actually uh, – I still talk to a lot of the staff there. I still talk to both the bosses there. Uh, I've actually been employed by both of the bosses after uh, we've uh, – after that operation ceased, um, but it was. I think uh, that speaks volumes about you, about you as a person. <laughs> well, no, I've, uh, I've been you have to know these guys and work for them. <laughs> um, I've been working in Manhattan now for Jesus, um, like seventeen years. So uh, it's a uh, it's been a fun ride. That's but, a polite uh, way of saying you've seen some shit. Uh, we have both seen some shit. We've both done some shit. Um, but Patrick and I used to, after we locked up the uh, bar, we would go out for after hours. We went to this place called O'Flaherty's. Now, O'Flaherty's was an old school Irish bar, and it was the neighborhood industry bar. Uh, closing time in New York City is 4 o'clock. They locked the door at 3. And after 4 o'clock, once you do your paperwork and whatnot, you go and you discreetly knock on the door. And you know, up until a certain point, depending upon the day of the week, they'd let you in if they knew you. And you would go in, and the only people, it would be nothing but industry. You'd have bartenders, uh, waiters, a couple of select, you know, regulars that were allowed in this select little club. And, you know, you could, you would just, uh, drink and chill till about, <laughs> we were there till, uh, sun came up a lot of times. Um, oh, yeah. It, it was very cool. It was very cool. It was actually in Hell's Kitchen, New York City, which, uh, if you look at it now, it's changed a lot, but this was back before it really changed. And you had a lot of those old school, um, New York City, like bars and like a lot of the old stories that are unfortunately been paved over. But uh, we had some good times in that bar. And there was a wonderful old bartender named Nelson um, from Dublin and a wonderful old man. But God, do not piss him off. You piss him off, you're 86 for the night. And a couple of times our entire crew got 86 for the night because uh, of a minor infraction. Um, it's because of him I don't allow people to order Irish car bombs. I uh, yeah, I remember Nelson. He I tried to order one from him one day and he I was twenty three. He leans over the bar and he tells me, I'm not gonna kick you out this time. But just so you know, that is a really offensive drink to order in an Irish bar or period. And he explained why it was offensive and I've never ordered one since. It's uh it it is offensive because it is a terrorist act. So uh you try to explain it to people and they don't get it and uh some days I explain it depends on how busy I am and how young the customers are and like if I understand if I think they'll take the lesson I explain it if I don't I, I don't I don't waste my time but yeah uh, we learned a lot of lessons in that bar. 
Uh, I, I, I just came to the realization how much of an elitist asshole I am as far as a bartender is concerned, because your explanation to people that order an Irish car bomb is you're like, hey, listen, this is why it's a terrible thing to do. Mine is explaining to people why they can't have a Sazerac on ice. <laughs> I'm that much of an asshole. Oh, uh, there are times I, will, I have denied people ordering Lafroig and uh, Coke. I'm <laughs> Trust me, uh, you don't, other gentlemen on this podcast will tell you I'm an asshole. Oh, we all are. We all are. Um, and But I, I'm not going to argue the fact, Sonic, that, yes, you, you come from a pretentious line of bartenders <laughs> in, your, yeah. in your bar upbringing. <laughs> yeah, sure do. But, hey, it's – it's uh... <laughs> That cocktail world serves its purpose. The the pub and, and sports bar world serves its purpose. I anytime somebody ever came up to me at the bar and was like, "Yeah, what's your uh, what's your favorite cocktail to make?" and I was like, "A shot and a beer." And like, "No, no, seriously." It's like, "No, seriously, it's my That's favorite drink I to make." Yeah. Like, it's, I make fancy cocktails. I don't drink fancy yeah, cocktails. I too, because in, in my fridge right now, I have uh, I have either Yingling or Budweiser. That's why I drink when I'm at home because um, people are like, "Don't you like better beer?" I like better beer, but when I'm home. You know, I don't need to be impressed by my beer. I'm just going to have a beer while having dinner or watching a ball game or whatnot. I can have something basic at home, and sometimes you want basic. So a shot in the beer is uh, not a bad thing. It's whatever you like to drink is what you drink. I think three, four years ago now maybe, uh, I took Sonic out on St. Patrick's Day and got him his first green <laughs> beer. It served in a plastic cup. The look on your face, like, wait, I have to drink this? Like, yes. Yes, you do. <laughs> it was the most priceless thing ever because you'd never seen it before. You'd never seen green beer before. <laughs> yeah, uh, nope. Every, yeah, every year before St. Patty's Day, I write out a list of do's and don'ts. And, you know, my my advice for St. Patty's Day or any, like, drinking holiday is if you're, like, a person that goes out and enjoys a cocktail, enjoys a well-crafted cocktail, enjoys the ambiance of a bar to so drink a cocktail – Stay your ass home on St. Patrick's Day because you're not going to get that. <laughs> no, not at all. It's like it's uh, yeah. it's an amateur holiday. I there was uh, that reminds me. Speaking of St. Patrick's, so I had been in New York for about six years, and it was I got the first opportunity ever to take off St. Patrick's Day. Uh, I was working at a little restaurant in uh, downtown Manhattan, and I went to my boss to put in my time off request, and he sees what St. Patrick's Day. You taking off St. Patrick's Day? St. Patrick, why? You are a professional bartender drinker. Like, why you need to take off the most you know amateur hour day of the year? And I, we went back and forth, and I could only describe my reasoning because I've never had St. Patrick's Day off. So I had to describe it as like, um, what was my manager's name? It was Steve? Like Steve, you see, for everybody else, this is amateur hour, but I've been preparing all year for this. So for once, I just want to take my take my chance at doing this marathon. And he's like, all right, cool. And here you go. Take the time off. I think I started drinking at 9 or 10 a.m. Um, first time I ever drank myself sober, which is a really weird sensation. I was, I remember being on the like 8th Avenue or something, walking from one bar to another. I don't remember what bar I was going to or which bar I was coming from, but the memory stops there. And then at some point I wake up. 
I come to anyway. I, I was never lost consciousness, but I, I came to sitting on the table of a bar that I'd never been to before. So I'm not even sitting in a chair or a bar stool. I'm sitting on the table with a bottle of water in my hand, chugging it. And then I come to it's like, wait, how did I get here? Where am I? And why am I not drunk anymore? If you've never drank yourself sober, first of all, don't recommend it. It was an, an amount of alcohol that nobody should ever ingest. And, uh, but a very weird sensation. And those who have done it before know exactly what I'm talking about. I went and met one other person who's admitted to drinking themselves sober. But on St. Patrick's Day, it was an impressive feat. I think I drank for, if I remember correctly, it was 17 hours straight that day. And one of my doctor hates me. Patrick, that just reminds me of a, a story I have of the two of us working together at the second place you and I worked together. That little bar on 19th Street? Oh, yeah, the watering hole. Yes, and uh, there was one day that you and I went out drinking after work, and uh, we came in, and the boss, he had imbibed the night before, and also the head chef had gone out and had a few. So the four people that were in the bar were all hungover and miserable. <laughs> Remember that day? I think I know which one you're talking about. Oh, God, yeah, that was that was a miserable day for all of us. Was that the one where uh, James, the owner, comes in and he's looking rough and is like, how'd you, how, James, how are you feeling? He goes, I feel like I swallowed the bottle and the glass. And you and I had just stocked up on, like, greasy breakfast sandwiches and Gatorade. And he's like, James, you want a Gatorade? He goes, fuck that. Get me a beer. We could do that with his bar. <laughs> yeah, he was. He was his yeah. bar. I, I'm not happy to say that him and I had a very, very bad falling out, which led to me uh, leaving there. But uh, – he was a wonderful man. I uh, I enjoyed working with him. I care. I actually I still do. I care about. Him. I wish I could have a chance to you know put that right before uh, things are too late. But uh, it was a wonderful experience to work there. He was the biggest. I mean, I learned more from him working in that bar than I have from most other people. But God, he was an asshole. There were how, so many days I just wanted to walk out and because he just treated you like crap. Uh, that's why but I walked out. <laughs> he was uh, he was a good man. Somewhere in there. Uh, yeah, he really was actually. Um, yeah, we've all, but you know, uh, I know you've learned something from every bar you've worked in. Uh, Sonic, I don't know you, but I'm sure you've learned things in every bar you've worked in. I know I've taken something from every bar I've worked in, and I uh, try to take that on my journey and try to add that to uh, my list of things I know how to do. But uh, I learned a lot from him, man. I really did. Oh, it's an interesting. All right, so that's an interesting segue point we can use. Um, going into another thing, I want to talk about what. In your guys' experience with all the different places you've worked, what has your view and opinion on the bar's role in community? Now, we know that things are going to be different. You know, bars are not going to be the same after this, not for a very long time anyway. Um, what service does the bar and restaurant um, let me try and think of the right words for this. Um, there's a role that a, a bar and restaurant has to fill for you guys. What is that role that we will have to continue as a public service and the good of the community? Like, what's our role in that? Go ahead. I gotta walk away for a second. My dog is freaking out. Be right back. No, go I'll, ahead. I'll let you. Who's going first? All right, I'll go first. No, hang um, on. <laughs> so. With all the different bars and everything that I've worked at, and I've been, had plenty of time the past couple of weeks to think about 
you know, is this even an industry I want to stay in? Thinking about all the things that are going to change. And I always do fall back on this idea that even though things are going to change and dining out and going to bars is not going to be the same as we remember it, there a bar has always been a central focal point of a community and in ways each bar develops its own community. You know, people need it's a it's a reassurance like a, it's a safety blanket i think that some people don't realize that's what they look at their favorite bar as not only just community but it's 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 a home away from home and they all still going still going to need that environment that that smile from the bartender as they walk in even if we have to limit the amount of people who can come into our bars at any given moment if we don't if that place isn't there, like, wh- where do you go? Like, sure, you have house parties and whatnot, but where do you? You know, it, it, house parties are a lot different than a bar atmosphere. And um, one thing I've uh, been thinking about through this whole thing is that people always want to go to a place where they're understood. And even if they're not speaking to somebody else, they know that everyone there is in the same boat they are. And right now, as a country and as a world, we're going through a shared traumatic experience. We are all at home isolated right now. And even if you go out to a bar, even if you don't talk to somebody else, you're around other people. So even if you're alone, you're still amongst other people. And right now, people don't have that. So people want to go somewhere and just to be around other people. Even if there's, like, no conversation, even if there's no interaction, they, the comfort of just being around other people is comforting. So it's going to give that. I think, like, the local pubs are probably going to uh, come back faster than, like, a a high-end cocktail bar. Oh, for sure. I I agree Uh, with that. I I think people just kind of want the comfort of just knowing they can go somewhere. And people are tired of being in their houses. And uh, they just kind of – even if it's, like, just across the street to be somewhere that's not inside their house, they want that. And even if there is a distance that you have to maintain, just knowing that there's a proximity – to other people, I think is going to be uh, essential to people's like mental and emotional health when this is all over. So I know people right now are getting feeling very isolated, um, especially if you're in a very cramped apartment. Um, you do feel very alone. So I think just the um, the fact that if you're going to be able to go out and go somewhere that's not your apartment and just be amongst people, even if you have to like maintain a distance from them, just being amongst people is actually going to be uh, just very reassuring and comforting for people when this is all over. That's and a good point. As far as like the local restaurants, people are tired of cooking for themselves, and some people can't cook, so they're eating. <laughs> they're eating with the bare minimum of food that probably you know could taste better. I mean, you know, people can cook, but you know, there's always that one place that makes this thing just right. Uh, so you uh, you kind of want the comfort and security that the neighborhood places are going to offer. Uh, speaking of cooking at home, um, I don't know if you, New York is seeing or Chicago is seeing what we're seeing out here in the Bay Area. Lots of people baking bread, doing sourdough starters. And um, a gentleman who I'm not friends with from Chicago, but we we have similar friends. Uh, he posted on Instagram. It, it took a, a month for him to finally go to the store and buy a five bag, five pound bag of flour so he could do some of his own baking. And my understanding is he's a, a fairly decent cook and everything. But he posts, he's like, I finally got after four weeks, I finally got my bag of flour. And he makes the comment alluding to now, just out of curiosity, is gluten allergy no longer a thing? 
because there was no flour anywhere for weeks. And how many times has somebody walked into our bar and like wanted, uh, what's gluten free? And you ask them, you know, is it a gluten allergy? Like I'll let the kitchen know to make sure it's like, Oh no, no, I just, I just don't, I don't like gluten. Like, so we got to do extra work just because you don't understand what gluten is. And because it's it's always done. <laughs> yeah. It's just Tito's. You have Tito's. Here you go. Oh, when I try to explain to people that whiskey, gin, rum, tequila, all that stuff, all gluten free, they look at me like I got three heads. I'm like, I'm trying to expand your horizons beyond vodka, especially when you say, ah, oh, I wish I could drink something else other than Tito's, but I gotta go gluten free. I'm like, it's all gluten free. Well, I, I prefer the flip side. Towards the end of my career, in the, the beginning of your career, you're like, all right, like, cool, you, I get it, gluten-free, we can have this conversation, we start to do it, and you're just like, oh, whatever, and you start to hear it over and over and over again, and towards the end of me being behind a bar, I had a guy come in and sit down and be like, hey, I want a cocktail off your list, I'm a big cocktail fan, um, I want it sweet, my palate is sweet as shit, make that shit motherfucking sweet as hell, and I was like, you're the man, dude, anything you want, like, totally into it, you're owning up to exactly what it is, I like it. Yeah, that's always a fun comment I, yeah, I get from people. Like, ah, oh, just make me a cocktail just not too sweet. And like, oh, is it, you know, you ask them why and make sure what not. And they're like, oh, no, I just don't like sweet. And like, well, that's crazy. Everybody likes sweet. Do you like cake? Yes, you like sweet. <laughs> Maybe you don't want your cocktail being overly sweet, but don't say you don't like sweet. I love when people ask for a cocktail that is inherently sweet and ask for it not too sweet. Like, you don't want this. I, I refuse to make the cocktail because I knew it was going to get sent back. This oh, yeah. One of the cocktails on our specialty menu is uh, it's bourbon, uh, honey simple syrup, uh, drunk cherries, and um, it, it, the, the drink is sweet. There's no yeah. way for me to make it not sweet. They said they want this drink. They don't want it sweet. I'm like, then they don't want this drink. Tell them to order something else because I'm not going to waste my inventory for it to be sent back. Oh, sure. And, and hopefully, you know, the the day of the consumer knowing more than the guy behind the bar will be a little maybe that doesn't come back i would i would like that to stay away like we do this for a living like i've been doing this for 20 years i don't what have you been doing oh you're an accountant well good i don't know anything about numbers so i'm not going to tell you how to balance your 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 balance sheet you don't tell me how to make drinks <laughs> you know that's um one thing that i'm a little bit worried about and i've seen this before is uh with all these industries, you know, getting downsizing and being laid off, and I feel bad for everybody that is feeling uh, job loss right now, people are going to say, well, you know, I can always bartend. And I oh. hate that because, one, that really just devalues what we do. And, two, it's not as easy as you think it is. Like I, like you said, I couldn't go into an accounting office and suddenly, you know, be an accountant. Don't think that you can suddenly become a bartender and just, you know, be a bartender. And bartending is going to get harder now because, you know, there's going to be restrictions on, you know, how we interact with our guests. I mean, I don't know what that's going to be, but we're anticipating that type of, you know, social distancing within a bar. Like, it's going to get harder to be a bartender. It's, and uh, I foresee I my, a lot. My family lives in Wisconsin right now, and they're reopening as of Monday, I believe. And oh, yeah, the, the rules there are uh, all seats taken away from the bar. Uh, bartenders must wear masks and gloves. I have no problem wearing gloves. Uh, the mask might be a little limiting because, you know, you can't be as inviting. You can't um, have that warm interaction over the bar. But now there's no bar seats. If there's no bar seats, that means that now the bartenders are going to have to be on the restaurant tip-out pool. 
Yeah, I mean that's I mean not I mean, to get too into it, but what does tipping look like when you can't get twenty people sitting at your bar because uh, you can't I have sit, like right now the place I work at, um, the bartenders are not on the waitstaff pool. We get tipped out by the pool. I'm not going to get tipped out by the waitstaff and work a full shift because that's not worth time. Yeah, it's honestly better being unemployed because whatever they tip me out is not, not worth what I would. The neighbor just dropped off a chocolate cream pie. Sorry, guys. Chocolate cream pie just came through the door. That takes total precedence of what we're I'm, I'm upset that it didn't go through my door. <laughs> so it's either going to be dim sum or a pie. Ooh, all right. Cool. Maybe Sorry. it's a dim sum pie. That's oddly, amazingly disturbing to think about. <laughs> yet <Yeah>, we are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's almost lunchtime. But, uh... Yeah, it's who knows. I, I actually hope that there's not an influx of people looking to bartend. We were talking to some friends this week who are thinking about leaving bartending altogether because they're looking at what it's going to look like down the road and like well, I don't know if I want to do that. Realistically, have to look at it. I mean, our industry is going to be changing. And here in New York, I mean, uh, with the rest of the company uh, country opening, uh, I'm realistically hoping that they keep us out of work as non-essential employees till at the very minimum June 1st and maybe even beyond that. Because there's other industries that should open before us. Oh, and yeah. I think that the longer you keep us out and the more, quote, unquote, normal we return to, the better it is for our industry. Because if we need- send this back to work right now, uh, I'm getting my unemployment benefits and I'm doing, you know, fairly well, knock wood. Um, and not that I want to be a drain on the unemployment because I, I hate being unemployed. It's not yeah, my style you. at all. But if you send us back to work right now, we lose our benefits and we're going to be, you know, have to make do with what we make. We're going to be making less than what we are. And some of, and obviously the industry will be making less than what it is. We will be on permanent unemployment much faster if you do it that way. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, to, like restaurants and bars will be the last ones to open. And hopefully as we watch other industries reopen and the things that they implement, first of all, we'll need a longer period of time to figure out how we safely reopen to the public just yeah. because of the nature of our business. But hopefully watching other businesses open up one at a time before we do, it'll help us be better prepared to reopen to the public in a safe manner for everybody. So I'm in no rush either, man, to reopen. I'm with you. I'm not in a rush. One more month would be great. Out of work, how appreciative will people be when we go back to work? Like we go, like we go back to work today, I guarantee you we'd be busy for the first night, but after that we you know, it would taper out. But the more time we spend out of work, when we finally reopen, if it's an extended period of time, we are going to be so appreciated uh, when people get back to work. So. Yeah, no, and um, I hope they'll still be, the bars will find their way back to being not only a safe haven of sitting down and with your neighbor and sharing a drink, but, you know, some of them, going back to the favorite stories and whatnot, like the debauchery and stuff and the things that we've seen over the years that I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to miss that sometimes. My favorite one had to be, um, at the hot comedy club, Johnny. I don't know if you were there this night, but do you remember in the, not the main stage room, but one of the smaller stages, uh, comedian, it was a stage where I think we could fit maybe 50, 60 people. Uh, capacity in this room, but the stage was small and the spotlights were in such a way that not only did it light up the stage, but it lit up a couple of tables that were sitting, situated right next to the stage. And if you were looking at the stage with the comedian on just to the left, 
there was a tape, I'll never forget this, a gentleman, um, we'll say late 30s, early 40s, and two women. And the spotlight is lit their table up like daytime. There was no hiding sitting at this table. And it was one of the worst tables to sit at because the comedian was always going to pick on you. At this particular moment, though, the comedian that was on stage was not one of those guys who picks on the audience, but he was stopped dead in his tracks in the middle of his joke by the people sitting at this table because they had just nonchalantly pulled a little baggie out of a purse, a pocket, who knows, <laughs> and started opening it up and cutting up lines of cocaine just right there in the middle of the show. And I don't know if they had a straw or rolled up dollar bill. Like the comedian stopped talking, stared at them, which brought everybody else's attention to look at this table these people didn't miss a beat, didn't look up, no nothing. <laughs> Just start doing lines of cocaine. And um, Anthony's best friend, who was an NYPD narc cop, was doing security for us that night. And we're just like, I can't remember. I can't remember his name. Like, what was the security guy's name, Johnny? Bruce. Bruce. Oh, God, Bruce. So Bruce just, he sees this, and uh, he walks up. He's like, all right, guys. Um... You you know you can't do that. And they look at him like, can't do what? <laughs> like, what is wrong with you people? <laughs> like, um, you can't do this. I mean, and I'm a cop. And this is really bad for you right now. <laughs> I mean, the first question I have is, like, how bad was the comedian that they felt the need to do this during his act? Um, I mean, to be honest, Johnny, how many good comedians did we have come through that place uh, it wasn't exactly. It wasn't exactly like Gotham Comedy Club or the Comedy Cellar. That's true. I mean, I there was, a, but you know, there's a couple of guys we had there that we, you know, the ones we had that did the crowd work. So uh, there were a few guys and girls that came through. They were excellent, and we've seen them go on to do things on Comedy Central, which is always very cool for me. I'm so proud of everyone. There's one guy there that you know should be doing more. <coughs> him, I know he's listening. Um, but uh, yeah. Um, yeah, actually, I do remember that night. Oh, God, I just, I was awesome. Working, no, I was working the music side that night, and I, I got wind of that story secondhand, and I was like, the fuck, what? Oh, that's right, I forgot we had the dueling pianos room as well. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, I have. God, if I never, I never hear Sweet Caroline ever again, I'll die a happy man. Actually, <laughs> what was really funny is uh, when that was going on, uh, Michael, one of the owners, there was a a sign on eBay, a Sweet Caroline's uh, neon sign, and uh, I, I was bidding on it because I thought it would be a nice present, and I kept getting outbid. Uh, long story short, him and I were bidding against each other. <laughs> we, both, we both lost it, and uh, we, I was telling the story. I was like, you know, I saw this thing online. I was going to buy it. He goes, that was me. I'm like, that was me. He goes, hey. <laughs> so uh, one of my favorite things um, – about a bar, especially a good old neighborhood dirty dive bar. We all have our favorite ones is, um, you know, w when you become family with the people that sit at the bar and you see them every day, how many times have we been um, at the bar and like somebody starts a fight or starts an argument with the bartender. And even though there's a bouncer at the door, you kind of tell whoever's starting shit with the bartender. like, Hey man, like you don't want to do that. Why? What are you going to do? And then everybody at the bar sits up and is like, we're all going to throw you out because you're interrupting our drinking time, which reminds me. It's always been one of my favorite things about a good dive bar. So my favorite moment behind 
Now, Sonic and I never got to work together behind a bar yet. There's still time. <laughs> We're still young-ish. Uh, but when I was sitting at your bar, you uh, the the sixth, I think it was the first cocktail bar. I think you got put in charge of as far as running. Yep. So this na- little neighborhood co- fancy cocktail bar in Chicago. I mean, as exciting as the drinks were, nothing ever happened there. It was kind of a sleepy neighborhood bar. But I'm sitting at the bar one time, and somebody started crap. I think over their tab with you, Jahush. And just like in my favorite dive bars, as soon as he started getting mouthy and threatening you, he and his friends got loud. Like everybody sitting at the bar, I think there was five of us. Everybody mm-hmm. sitting at the bar got up and proceeded to like kind of like herd this guy out the door as he's screaming obscenities at you. And all of us and yourself are standing in the middle of the street screaming at this guy. And I've had probably, oh, okay, two of your Ray and Nephew daiquiris, which is two too many. Um, <laughs> thinking afterwards, like, why are we standing in the middle of the street yelling at this guy? Like, this guy wasn't going to start shit, but everybody at the bar was just like, you ain't fucking with our bartender, man. Like, you're cutting into our drinking time. Get yeah, the like the five, or, the five or six people at the bar were like, you – Two of my regulars who were there like three or four times a week who used to travel to whatever bar I was working at as I bounced around my career. And then the other two people at the bar were one of my servers and her husband. And her husband is like a triple black belt uh Brazilian jiu-jitsu teacher and trainer and has been doing it for like 15 years. That's why and we were all so gutsy because he was there. Yeah, yeah he <laughs> He, he was the one, like, he was behind all of us. We were all getting, like, loud and in this guy's face. And then it, like, he started to push back. We spilled out into the street. And all of a sudden, Jeff just rolls up behind. And this guy's in a headlock and he's being put in his car. And the girl that was with the guy that got mouthy was like, we're so sorry. You're right. You're right. We're sorry. Yeah, it was all over because he didn't want to pay for his, he thought he got overcharged for a day. It was like, well, you went into a cocktail bar with the average cocktails, $14. Yeah, it get expensive to get drunk. Sure does. Plus, uh, you lose track of math the drunker you get. Uh, I um, I recall a story earlier in my career. I was actually at this bar in my hometown of Farmingdale, uh, which is on Long Island. I worked at this bar called Granny O'Shea's. Oh yeah. And uh, Patrick's heard many of these stories. And uh, this was a we had our own dart league in my town because uh, we didn't want to travel and get DWIs, so we just had our own in town dart league. And uh, 25 years later, not one DWI in the league. We're very proud of that. Um, one night, it was a, we were playing a team there that um, – it was one of those bars we were very cool with. Like, that wasn't our bar, but we knew those people. And if we ever went bar hopping on, like, a Friday or Saturday, we would go there. We would pay their respects. And we knew their regulars. Then you are regulars. And we were all very cool. So, we're, we're playing darts in my bar. I was actually bartender on that night. So, every time I had to go play my game, one of my regulars would come and bartend for me. This is how neighborhood that place was. There was a guy that was not one of us. He was there. He was drinking. He was getting a little mad. He was getting a little perturbed that it was all about the darts that night. And that was the entire vibe of the bar. It was like, it was darts. Like, he, uh, couldn't play the jukebox because, you know, we were, we took, turned the jukebox off and he was upset that his bar experience wasn't being, uh, res- quote unquote respected. Meanwhile, you know, it's like 20 of us and one of him. And, you know, uh, at one point in time, I'm behind the bar and he's being a dick. And he said, he said, how about I come behind that bar and kick your ass? And as soon as they said that, like everybody like just like 
put their darts down. I said, listen, dude, you're going to walk out of here right now. He's like, no, I'm going to come behind that bar and kick your ass. I'm like, if you touch me, do you think you're going to walk out of here? Let me rephrase that. If you touch me, do you think you're going to walk again? <laughs> so uh, he promptly left, you know, as you do. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I, I do miss kicking people out of bars. It's not fun, but I do miss it. <laughs> you're not doing it right. <laughs> no, the best, the no, best moment. Uh, and I'll never be able to replicate this um, ever. Uh, working at a bar here in Chicago called um, Average Mind. I'm not going to mention the name of the bar. Those <laughs> just wasn't the most, wasn't the best career choice at the time. But you know, whatever. So your wedding weekend. <laughs> yeah. No, we uh, we've never set back a foot in there ever okay. again. But anyway, so it was one of those 4 a.m. nightclub divey bars um, where people a fight breaks out every night. It's just you just expect it. So we have a guy who um, early on the night. Too much to drink. He's with a group of buddies, and we tell them, hey, we got to cut this guy off. It's time for him to go home. And his his buddy's like, okay, yeah, he's stumbling over himself. They get him in the cab. They send him off. Well, the same group, about an hour later, one of the guys that stayed is getting – he's starting to make the women in the bar feel uncomfortable. Can't have so that. So we're like – and and enough a few complaints came up to the bar about him. And so we were like, hey, man, we uh, we can't serve you anymore. We're going to ask you to leave, explain why. He gets mouthy. We go back and forth. I'm the manager on duty at the time. So, you know, he and I exchange words back and forth. I'm trying to remain calm. But he, you know, I'm only 5'7 on a good day. This guy had to be pushing almost six feet. So he's towering over me a little bit. He looks down at me. He points at me, like sticks his finger in my face. He goes, you're not big enough to kick me out of this bar. I was like, you're right, I'm not. And I raised my hand, and <laughs> three giant dudes surround him, and uh, one of them named Joe was like, what seems to be the problem? Oh, hey, Joe, yeah, no, this guy says I'm not big enough to kick him out of the bar. And Joe looks at him and like, I am. And this, like, big, <laughs> tough guy all of a sudden is like, oh, cowering, is shaking in his boots. Okay, I'll leave. And just for shits and giggles, uh, Joe grabbed him by the scruff of the back of his neck and dragged him out anyway, even though he was willing to leave. Uh, I, I just for, for never in my lifetime ever again will that situation come up where somebody's going to go, you can't do this. And you're right, I can't. But these guys will do it for me. Thank you very much. So uh, I was trying to – go for it. No, no, you please. I was trying to think of a good story because, like you said, I come from the prissy cocktail bars. Like, people get drunk and it's usually just like, hey, dude, just just go home. Like – it's just usually how it works. Um, but I, I do have one story when I was the manager on duty here in Chicago at volume 39 in the hotel. And this dude at the end of the bar just starts mouthing off. And I go over to him and he pays his tab and he leaves. And he pays his tab with a room charge. So we know he's staying in the hotel. So we're like, okay, we don't feel as bad as him being like a little bit tipsy. You know, he was respectful. He's fine. He leaves and he comes back about half an hour before last call and sits in the same spot. Starts talking and talking and talking and is talking to the bartender who is female. And she comes over to me and she's like, hey, this dude's making me really uncomfortable. I need you to talk to him. I was like, sure. So I go over there and I'm like, hey, listen, man, you've had a lot to drink. Let's just go ahead and get you back up to your hotel room. No hard feelings. I'll take care of your one drink I'll t- and, and just, you know, have a great night. And he starts mouthing off at me now. And it goes back and forth and back and forth. And he goes um, and pulls me aside 
and starts yelling at me. And I was like, hey, listen, man, you're you're disturbing the bar guests. Let's get you outside of the bar into the hotel room and we'll discuss it there. So he comes with me and I, I follow he follows me to the front desk. So now I've got a witness in front of me of what's going on. And he looks at me. He's like, well, you're just going to be a piece of shit about this and just starts going off on me. And I look at him and I'm like, listen, man, there's two ways to go about this. You can go up to your room or we can call the cops. Like, it's one of two ways. And he's like, you won't call the cops. And I look over at the, the night desk manager because it's now like one thirty-two in the morning. I'm like, hey, can you call the police? And she's like, sure. Calls the police. Five minutes later, because we're in downtown Chicago, the police are coming through the door. And he's like, wait, you actually called the cops on me? And I was like, <laughs> And they walk up the stairs, and they're, they're standing behind us, and they're gathering the story. And they look at me, and they're like, how do you want to deal with this? And I was like, I have to go take care of my bar, because I've been dealing with this guy for 45 minutes now. I would like to get my staff out of here. If if he's content to go upstairs, please, let him go upstairs. No No hard feelings. And they're like, okay, cool. So the guy looks at me, starts yelling again in front of the police, and gets in my face. And the police are like, sir, you might want to stand back. Pull him back. And then he just punches me square in the sternum. <laughs> and with cops standing there? <laughs> yeah. And the police officer looks at him and goes, you may or may not know this, but punching someone in front of a cop's a bad idea. <laughs> it makes it worse when he's the guy that's on duty that can press charges. And even, even worse, all of the police officers in Chicago now wear video recorders. So we just have tape of you punching the manager on duty. Guy looks at me and goes, do you want to press charges? I go, yeah, they put him in cuffs and they took him out. (laughs) (laughs) He was, he had gotten away with it. You did just, it's like, dude, just go to your room. So, uh, there was one night back at Granny O'Shea's back in Farmingdale. And I have a, a good friend of mine, and his name is Big Brian. We call him Big Brian because he's rather huge. And uh, Brian is, if you know him, he's the nicest guy in the world. He's a large man, uh, very not. Uh, he's like kind of built like a rock, like just kind of very sturdy, and uh, biker. But if you look at his biker vest, every uh, patch is toys for tots, toys for tots, toys. The biggest teddy bear you ever want to meet, until. Oh yeah. Yeah. Now, we're sitting there, and Brian got me into martial arts. He said I should study jiu-jitsu. So I studied jiu-jitsu with Brian for a while, and I really enjoyed it. And my friend, uh, one of my best friends, Chris, um, he studied kung fu. So we're at the bar one Friday night, and we're, uh, we're just having a pint, and we're, we're talking about cross-training and this technique and that technique. And Brian, when he starts talking about martial arts, he's, very, he's actually uh, he's a modern-day Buddhist. He really is very much into the zen of the martial art, not so much the combat, but actually the discipline it gives you. And uh, he enjoys that. Now, my friend Katie is bartending. And uh, there's a couple of guys at the bar acting a fool. And it's getting to the point where she can't deal with it. They're just, like, getting it rowdy. And they're kind of, like, they're smacking drinks out in front of people. And uh, guys are taking shirts off and throwing things. And Brian, very calmly, takes his pint, takes a sip. He goes, excuse me, gentlemen. Goes over to one of the guys and goes, hi. Puts him in a very painful-looking armbar and slams his head on the bar. Then very, cal- then very calmly explains, hi, trust me, you've had enough to drink. And as he's doing this, uh, there's three of them. The two buddies are squaring off, and the more they square off, the more torque he's putting on the guy's arm. He goes, all right, uh, you might want to step back a little bit, gentlemen. Uh, okay, so it appears to me you've had enough to drink. I think it's time that you should leave. All right, Katie, honey, yeah, what's their tab? 
All right. Can you reach your wallet? Okay. He loosens <laughs> the torque up a little bit to let him reach his wallet. He goes, all right. T- okay. Pay the, pay the bill. Tipper. Tipper better. <laughs> these two guys want to jump him, but, like, me and my buddy Chris are, like, they're, like, can we jump in? Or he seems to got some control. So we're just, like, kind of there. And we're, like, <laughs> uh, but meanwhile, he's – the more – they look like they're going to jump him. The more torque he's putting on this guy's arm, which looks inc- – it was uncomfortable to me, and I'm on Brian's side. <laughs> he goes, all right, uh, Katie, is there a bill squared? Okay, good. Okay, it's time we left. Picks the guy up, still torquing the arm, opens the door with his head, holds the door, holds the door open with this person's body, <laughs> holds it open for his friends to leave, and then proceeds to throw the guy out the bar. Uh, then goes back to his seat, picks up his pint, has a gentleman in the sip and goes, I'm sorry, where were we? <laughs> uh, I feel like I've met him at least once when we were, I was in New York. Uh, yeah, I, I think you might have. You might have met him. Yeah, I remember you telling this story before. That's, that's a good one. That's uh, one of my faves. I got one more good one about, like, you never know what can happen at the bar and then we do got to wrap it up pretty soon. We're coming up on an hour here guys. And yeah. I think the, our audience's attention span is, is going to reach its max. But so I'm doing a daytime shift at uh, a brunch shift at Sable in Chicago. Um, still to this day, my favorite bar in the entire world, but I'm, it's a slow day. I've only got about three people at the bar and two of them are this, these two guys who are Chicago natives, clearly um, uh, Chicago Irish. Um, I can't remember the gentleman's name. We're going to call him Paul, and we've been shooting the shit back and forth for a while and having a good time. Paul settle, wants to settle up his tab, swipe his card, put the, the receipt down for him to sign. Paul goes, all right, Patrick, uh, what would you like for a tip? His tab might have been $150 or something like that. And I, Because we've been bantering back and forth and cracking jokes and everything, I just jokingly walked by. It's, oh, $200. And I... Maybe I was washing dishes or something. I come back over and he's writing $200 in the tip line. I said, oh, P- Paul, P- first of all, I, I was joking. You don't have to tip me that much. Like th- th- we were joking all day long. Please don't do that. And he goes, what? I asked you an honest question. I think you gave me an honest answer. You said you want 200 bucks. I'm giving you 200 bucks. And in the course of our conversation, uh, he had mentioned he worked in hospitality himself at one time, alluding to bars that he's run and whatnot. And so I had to stop and say, Paul, that's really, that's, it's very kind of you. I thank you very much. I know you're retired from the industry. What do you do? He looks me in the eye with kind of like an Irish twinkle in his eye. He goes, I don't do anything. And it immediately occurred to me, oh, this man does bad things for certain people and gets paid really well for it. I recognize you from my days in New York. I know exactly who you are. Sir, you can come back anytime you want. The next round's on me. <laughs> Never saw the man again, but um, moral of the story is when somebody sitting at your bar asks you how much you want for a tip, aim high. They might give it to you. <laughs> uh, I'll, if, if I may jump in and end with my favorite story behind the bar that you just talked about. Yes. So, um, Sable, again, in my lineage, a, a fairly nice cocktail bar. Um, and Friday and Saturday night, I tend to work the well, um, where you're just getting all the tickets from the restaurant and they're, you know, 10 feet deep and you're just buried in cocktails for like 10 hours. It's awful. Uh, and amazing. Good old days. And awful, right? but amazing. <laughs> and at one point, 
I had jumped into the middle well, and the middle well has, you know, ju- you're just the bar length apart from someone, and you're always leaning over, so you can hear everything that everyone's talking about. And so I'm in the middle well, and these two girls jump into the seats as soon as they come going. They're maybe 22, 23 years old. I card them to make sure, like, they, they were definitely on the younger side. And I walk away, and I come back, give them the spiel, and they're looking over menus. And because the tickets are continuing to flow, I'm constantly walking away, coming back, pulling tickets, taking drinks to the to the service area, and coming back. So I get back, and we start having a conversation back and forth. They order their drinks, and so I start to build them, and so I'm stuck in my well. And I hear them start to to catch up, and they're like, how was your trip to Vegas? You have to tell me about the Bachelorette Weekend in Vegas. I make them their drinks, hand it to them, pick up the two other drinks, and bring them to the well. And I come back, and they're like, yeah, and that was at the third bar. Like, we were really raging, so I've missed, like, gaps of the story throughout. And so they're catching up. Oh, my God, the bar was crazy. It was crazy there, this, that, the other thing. Um, Yeah, and then we ran into, like, we thought everyone were celebrities. I leave, and I come back, and she's like, well, were they? Was it? And she's like, yeah. And the girl goes, well, what did you do? And the other girl just looks her straight deadpan, and I can hear everything she's saying. And she just goes, well, it was Jeremy Piven. Of course I blew him. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. What's funny is that's actually her favorite story, too. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) She's cutting that right now somewhere. Oh, I hope she is. That's the highlight of her life. Oh, God, we've all heard stories like that at the bar. And you know what? I want to do this again um, on our, and continue these stories. Um, Johnny, if you would uh, care to join us again in the future, I'd love to have you. This has been fun. It was such a pleasure to be with you guys today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Awesome. Yeah, for cool. sure. Well, I um, want to thank you all for listening today. Um, the whole all of five people right now who are tuning into our, our little podcast. Um, this is uh this has been fun and uh I miss you guys very much. I'm glad to hear you guys are healthy. Um and uh yeah, I'm before we get on to any other tangents, let's let's cut it here and, and regroup another time. Um all right, I'm gonna say bye guys. Bye guys. Gentlemen, bye guys. So Have a great rest of your night. Be well. Yeah, you too. Everyone out there be safe and healthy. Yeah, be safe, wash your hands and call your mother. Call her what? Good night. Good night, guys. Bye bye.